of you guys have ever seen before or remember, I haven't seen one for a while, but you remember these Southwest airline commercials that they use this tag phrase, wanna get away? They look a little bit like this. Brenna, roll those commercials. My password. Yes, sir, we need your password. The password that I use. Yes, sir, your password. There's been another breach. Sir. Right, okay. I-H-A-T-E-M-Y-J-O-B-1. I hate my job. One. Want to get away? Who amongst you goes by the name Fenwick? Tell me, and the rest of you will be spared. I am Fenwick. I am Fenwick. I am Fenwick. Hey, Fenwick, you seen my shield? This has got vertical stripes on it. Mine had horizontal. Want to get away? <laughs> Address should be there, 1800 Ann Street. Hello? Yeah, it's your driver. I'm on the car. Um. Go, go, go! Uh -huh. Those are the hostages! Want to get away? Oh, guys, we've all been there, haven't we? I saw I, one of my favorite ones was one of the original ones where the guy, if you, I don't know if you remember, he pulls up to the uh, drive through at the bank and he's tossing all the coins in the little uh, plastic container and his wife or girlfriend sitting next to him and she goes, I don't think you're supposed to put coins in there. And he's like, yeah. And he puts it in there and it like gives this whole like speeding up thing and it goes into the inside of the bank, busts against the wall and change flies everywhere uh, inside the bank. That's one of my favorite. I saw one this week that I had never seen before it was a guy on a weightlifting bench. And I, I had to watch it like three times. It's like, what in the world has happened? All you see at the beginning of it is this white, it literally looks like bird dropping, drop into this guy's mouth while he's like doing a bench press. Well, you kind of find out later there's a guy over him spotting him, and it was his gum that fell out of his mouth into the other guy's mouth. <laughs> oh, I know, right? <sighs> Wanna get away. Guys, we have, we've all been in the moment or situation where something embarrassing or horrifying or painful happens and all we want to do is just escape, to get out of there. Or as the band Soft Cell popularized in the 1980s in their song Tainted Love, sometimes I feel I've got to, dun, dun. there you go, I heard somebody like was starting to get it, run away, I've got to get away from the pain and the tears, and the hurt. Now, they didn't say that in their song, but sometimes we feel, guys, we want to do that, right, in our lives, to just get away from everything in this world that, that hurts us, that pains us, that causes us, for whatever reason, to drive around in our cars and hear a song and well up with tears. And although the song that I just mentioned and many like it deal with the agony that comes from loving someone and not having that love returned, it's symbolic, I think, of a greater anguish that plagues us in the broken world in which we live. Because the world we live in can be a very dark place sometimes, right? That, that was a moment right there probably where you've been like, yeah, and you just nod your heads and say audibly, yes. Guys, it's no mistake at all that much of the Bible focuses on the relationship between dark and light. 
Because we as followers live in a kingdom of light. We're told that over and over in Scripture. But the world that we live in is controlled by dark and sinister forces. There is bound to be between those two things a cosmic battle until the end of time and the renewal of all things that we just talked about a few weeks ago. You see how all this stuff goes together, right? Guys, the darkest of darknesses could really characterize where and when we step into the story today in Luke's gospel that he has set out. He says at the very beginning, the first few verses, he says, I have set out to write about the events that have unfolded using eyewitness accounts and carefully investigating everything from the beginning. He sets us right in the middle of the story in Luke chapter 1. If you have your Bibles or you have your device, please turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be reading several verses from there this morning. And he puts us and plunks us right in the middle here in verse 5. It starts like this of Luke chapter 1. When Herod was king of Judea. Stop. And I know everybody loves it when I do this, right? You're like, dude, you read half of a verse and you're stopping already. Guys, from the get-go, I, I want you to know this. and I want you to know what Luke is doing here. He is, he is putting us into a real story in history, involving real people, as we'll find out here in just a minute as we continue reading. When we read those few simple words, and again, we would read those and be like, okay, that's great. I know when the story takes place. During the reign of King Herod, who is the king of Judea. I get that. It, it speaks way more than we realize. We'll talk about Herod next week at length. Um, but to say that he was sinister and dark and evil actually might be kind of an understatement. Honestly, when we read these words here, Herod was the king of Judea, it should actually read more like this. In the darkest and the most evil days that men can remember. That's where we find ourselves when Luke opens his story to set out this account. But guys, here is the exceedingly good news. God was getting ready to turn on the lights. God was getting ready, we might say, for Christmas Day. And here is what I know to be true, whether it's here in first century Palestine or it is in 2021, rolling into 2022 in this world, God has always been at work in the darkness. In fact, this is very interesting to me. God has only ever had darkness to work with. Do you understand that? What does it say all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it says the earth was formless or it was void and there was what? Darkness. Darkness covered the face of this world. You see, from the very beginning... God has only ever had darkness to work with. God is at work in the darkness, and he is at work in the darkness in ways that are not immediately apparent. And that is certainly true with the story for this morning and this couple that we are going to take a look at their lives. We looked at it last week, didn't we? We talked about Joseph of Nazareth. And could there have been an, any more of an ordinary, blue-collar, ho-hum guy than Joseph of Nazareth, and God says, that's who I'm going to use. And I said it last week uh, during Bible study, uh, and I don't 
has always chosen Nazareth. And what I mean by that is he always chooses places like Nazareth and people who would come from Nazareth. That is, he's always choosing the underdog, ordinary person that no one else would see coming to do his work. Now, I want you to contrast this with the opening phrase, Herod, the king of Judea, darkness at its darkest point, guys, with the line that immediately follows it. I'm going to continue on in verse 5. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Now, here's something I want you to understand from the very beginning. We're like, oh, my land, this guy was like a priest. And not only that, but like his wife was from the priestly line of, of you know that name, don't you? Aaron. That's a big time name. We're like, ooh, ah, these people must be more important than Joseph of Nazareth, who was, he was just from Nazareth. And he did come from a priestly line, but he didn't come from somewhere. I'm just going to try and make this comparison. He didn't come from somewhere like Carmel, Indiana. He came from somewhere else, like, uh, let me think here for a minute, like Connorsville. Like he came from the, it says here, the hill country it'll talk about later. I don't know what that is. I don't know where that is. I couldn't point to it on a map where exactly Zechariah and Elizabeth were from, but they were from Podunkville, USA. He came from sort of an unpromising background. That, that's what makes all of this more wonderful is that God is at work in the darkness. God is at work in ways that are not immediately apparent or visible, but nevertheless guaranteed. Guys, everything that God has ever said or promised has come to pass or will come to pass. It is guaranteed. And the story today is proof of that. Guys, darkness was the scene in the world. Darkness was the scene in Israel here as Luke pulls back the curtain in chapter 1 before the arrival of Jesus. You understand this, right? That for centuries, the people had waited and waited and waited for a Messiah. It's why Isaiah says all the way back in, in his prophecy, and he talks about a people who are living in great darkness. They were just sitting there hoping and, and wishing and praying that the Messiah would come. But every hope and every anticipation to that point had been left unfulfilled. I mean, sure, there were moments of eagerness and, and maybe, maybe, maybe this is the time. Maybe this is the one. But all of that had fizzled out and was seemingly long gone. We talk about it a, a lot, especially talking about in Bible study, that at this point that Luke begins to write this story, God had not spoken. And Brian referenced this in his community. I want, I want to say this again so you get this. He had not spoken in 400 years through his prophets or any other way. Now, 400 years is a bit hard for us to, uh, to capture, and I'm glad that you said that. If you think about that, guys, and just 400 years for us, that would take us back to the year 1621. <laughs> now, that puts it into perspective, doesn't it? You're like, that sounds like a long time ago. It is a long time ago. And people waited all of that time, 400 years, but they waited thousands of years prior to that for a Messiah to come and to rescue and to change everything. And seemingly, as we step into first century Palestine, everybody's saying, there's no sense anymore. 
There's no hope that this will actually happen. And guys, this is why Luke opens his gospel the way that he does. And so that we see the heartache and we see the longing in God's people looking for a miracle. Do you guys think that there are people out there today looking for a miracle? Some of us in here in this room this morning, we're just like, God, just one, just one single tiny miracle is all I'm asking for. That's why I don't think that much has changed drastically in over 2,000 years. Guys, many people are looking for a Christmas miracle. As the year winds down and everybody's filled with holly and jolly, with the prospect of a new year and a fresh start on the horizon, so many people are wishing and they're expecting for a miracle. It explains why we fill the season with warm fuzzies and sentimental music and why the Hallmark Channel skyrockets in viewership just after Thanksgiving. Which, by the way, I'm sorry. I just, I'm going to say it and I'm going to take a lot of flight. That is a horrible channel, by the way. I mean, that's fine. Get your jollies if you want to, but my land with a horrible channel. Go. Okay, back. Here's the problem, guys, with all of this. I didn't know what Holly and Jolly is all about, but the problem is that a miracle, or a miracle at least in the form that most people are looking for, never shows up. Guys, the post-Christmas letdown eventually sets in because we have placed our hopes in a million different maybes. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is the thing that will get me going. Maybe this is the thing that will finally cheer me up and get me past all of this. And whatever dark cloud loomed over us as December begun is staring us right in the face as January 1st rolls around. That's the problem with a miracle and the way that most people are looking for it. Guys, even those of us who truly know hope and have a reason for our hope get caught up in the possibility of a short-term happiness through sentimentality that covers or simply just covers over, papers over the real and present anguish in this world. What we try to do is we try to buy into the hap, hap, happiest season of all to just mask the brokenness and to escape the misery that permeates our world and our lives. I know you're just thinking to yourself like, man, Ryan, I'm really glad that I came this morning for you just to build me up. Fleming Rutledge says that the great theme of Advent, which is a season in which we are in and is celebrated by the church, many in the church, the great theme of Advent is hope. But it is not tolerable to speak of hope unless we are willing to look squarely at the overwhelming presence of evil in our world. I translate it this way, guys. Hope is very hollow if we don't have a sense of what our hope is actively battling against. And to do that, we often need to look at evil and suffering and darkness in this world, and that is really scary, isn't it? To step right up to darkness and look it in the face and acknowledge it. Guys, here's the thing, and I kind of started everything this morning by saying, boy, it's not always wonderful, is it? is that sometimes we do not, and not just sometimes, but we do not appreciate the need for hope until we come face to face with the heartache. And I know that you're thinking to yourself, like, it's not really what I wanted to hear this morning, Ryan. I know it's not what you wanted to hear this morning, but it's what you need to hear this morning. 
that don't deflect and sidestep, ignore, try to cover over, mash down the pain and the hurt and the brokenness in this world because you will never ever truly understand and appreciate and accept and take a hold of hope like you should. And here's the thing that we often do. We often try to fix the heartache or chase that miracle by looking to ourselves or to something else to pull us out of the funk. There was a New York Times ad several years ago and it said this very simply. This one line here catches me. The meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. Sounds to me a whole lot like the Hallmark Channel, if you ask me, but whatever, I'm going to stay away from that. Isaiah chapter 8. This is a very interesting couple lines in here. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20 through 22 says this, Look to God's instructions and teachings. People who contradict his word are completely in the dark. They will go from one place to another, weary and hungry, and because they are hungry, they will rage and curse their king and their God. They will look up to heaven, and then listen to this in verse 22, and then they will look down at the earth for the solution to their problems. But wherever they look, they will be in trouble and anguish, and there it is, that word again, dark despair. They will be thrown out into, the, there it is again, the darkness. Guys, the same mindset rules today as it did in Isaiah's day and before Jesus came in first century Palestine. Things are dark, but we really truly believe that we can end darkness with just enough intellect and innovation. It's what I call a we are the world mindset. You remember that back in the 80s, right? We just link arms and hands and we are the world and we can do this ourselves, but we just have enough love and unity and peace. It will all make things better. No. I'm sorry. It doesn't. That's not the solution to the very big problem that the world finds itself in. The first president of the Czech Republic, and I love saying this name, Vaclav Havel had an amazing insight into this confidence that we could save ourselves and said this, pursuit of the good life will not help humanity save itself, nor is democracy alone enough. A turning to and a seeking of God is needed. The human race constantly forgets that we are not God. I want to say that again, guys. We are not God. Not if we get enough of us together and we love each other enough and we create enough unity and peace. We are not God. We will not fix the problem. Guys, despite our greatest sincerities and our greatest attempts, we will not be able to put the world back together. Humanity cannot save itself. In truth, actually, this kind of thinking, the attempts to do exactly that, only lead us deeper into darkness. That's the irony of the situation. We think, I can fix this. I can do this. I can be better. We can be better together. And all we do the whole time is just drive ourselves deeper into a hole. 
Guys, this is where the message of Christianity is so insanely important. The message of Christianity is this, and I want you to listen to this, is that, yes, things really are as bad as they seem. And I love that about Christianity because it's very honest. Yes, things are bad. And we cannot fix this ourselves. Things really are as dark as they appear. Nevertheless, there is hope. Amen? Guys, we have to, have to, have to believe that with every shred and fiber of our beings. Guys, the message of Christmas is not about manufacturing sentimental feelings in the vain hopes of a miracle. It's about believing the reality that God has birthed something new in Jesus. And because of this, God will birth something new in you and in me. That's the message of Christmas. Not just a cute little baby and a little manger and all these little animals around it. It is about the fact that God has done something in history that has completely changed history. But here is the more personal thing. He will do the same thing in you. And he will change you and he will change your heart and he will transform you if you would just allow him to do that. This is the true Christmas message, guys, that whatever darkness or whatever hole you may find yourself in, hope is real. I don't just say that flippantly because that's what I'm supposed to say and because it sounds good and will look really, really great on a card. Guys, hope is real. On those living in darkness, a light has dawned. And that is why this morning, the story of this couple that we're going to read about and we're looking at this morning holds such importance. Again, we would be tempted to look right over them. But I want you to listen to their story as we continue to read Luke, picking up in verse 6 of chapter 1 and reading several verses here. So hold on. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. And so one day, Zechariah was serving God in the temple, for his order was on duty that week. As was the custom of the priest, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. I said in Bible study, this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be chosen to do this. There were, it's estimated probably in, uh, in Zechariah's day, about 20,000 priests who served in the temple at any one time. And when it talks about like the lot was cast, it, like, it literally was like the phrase we use, the, the roll of the dice. And they felt that God was sovereignly in control of that rolling of the dice, and it came up Zechariah. And this is it. You were chosen to do this, and you were never chosen or even considered for this again. And this is the situation he finds himself in. While the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. And I love this line because I think it just doesn't even capture it. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear. Do you think? But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. It's a very interesting phrase and line there, by the way. I don't have time to really dig into it. because that's, we, we should pay attention to that. What in the world is Zechariah praying about? 
That's an interesting question, is it, right? What, what could he possibly be praying about? And we, we learned previously that he and his wife have not been able to conceive, not been able to have a child. Many people would say, well, he's probably praying for a child. I, I don't think he is. I think Zechariah is so humble and he's so selfless. This is such a sacred moment. He's like, I'm not going to pray for that on my behalf. I think he's praying like a whole lot of other Israelites were in that day. That the Lord, would you please finally send your Messiah into this dark world to light things up. Everybody else in the temple that day is praying that same prayer. Don't be afraid. He says, your wife Elizabeth will give you a son. You are to give him the name John, which is very odd, right? We talked about this last week. What should this baby's name have been? Zechariah. After old dad. This is the second time this has happened now. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth, and he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the father, their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Brian talked about this again, but can you imagine Zechariah standing in the temple, a man who is a priest that knows God's word very well, and he starts to hear these words in these lines a man in the spirit of Elijah who, who will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children he will cause people to to turn back and accept the wisdom of God like the angels tell us he's like this this is Malachi like this is this is crazy this is going to be my son Zechariah said to the angel I mean in all that and all that he's imagining and he is just Knocked off his rocker right now. He says, how in the world can I be sure this will happen? And you're like, oh, Zechariah. Crystal asked this morning, she goes, oh, why was that so bad for him to ask a question? He kind of like needed to confirm that, didn't, didn't he? It's, it's the attitude with which he did it. How am I going to be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. Then the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. I heard this this week, and this is very interesting. I would never have picked this up. The language here is such that what he is saying is, although I am standing, and I, I, this is a whole different discussion for a whole different day. Although the angel Gabriel standing in the presence of Zechariah, he was also simultaneously standing in the presence of God. He was at that moment hearing the voice of God to tell him, tell him to tell Zechariah something. Again, whole discussion for another day but that's the language that is there but now since you didn't believe what I said you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born I was joking and as an aside this morning I think that Elizabeth was probably like yes <laughs> nine months of silence and he won't be able to make any tubby jokes about my pregnancy this is gonna be great Silent and able to speak for my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out of the sanctuary, wondering why he was taking so long. When he finally did come out, he couldn't speak to them. Then they realized from his gestures and his silence that he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary, do, do you think? When Zechariah's week of service in the temple was over, he returned home. Soon afterward, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months. And I love this last line here, verse 25, how kind... The Lord is. How gracious the Lord is. Because he has taken away my disgrace of having no children. It's actually a, a wildly different response than Zechariah gave, isn't it? Well, how can I know this will happen? She doesn't, she doesn't doubt for one minute. 
She says, God has been so gracious to me. No longer will I be in disgrace. I will have a child. Guys, in the most unexpected of ways, through the most unexpected couple who had been hoping for decades for their own little miracle, God worked to prepare the way for the coming king. The light who would extinguish all darkness once and for all. Because when all seemed lost and all hope felt like it was gone, God was reminding his people that although he was silent, he certainly was not sleeping. Guys, Luke 1 is largely about God's work in the lives of his people. And specifically, this is very interesting, this very favored couple. As Alistair Begg says, the out of the ordinary things, the dramatic things, interventions from the heavens described within the framework of everyday, ordinary life. That's what we find here in Luke chapter 1. That's what we found last week in Matthew chapter 1 as well. But, but isn't it just like God. Isn't it just like him to use the ordinary, out-of-the-way people and places to do the most extraordinary things? And just to show you, this, guys, I think this right here is the payoff of everything in the sermon. And it really comes in these two people, and specifically their names. To show you how God is speaking and he's moving in unlikely ways. Let me tell you a little bit about this faithful couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. First, Zacharias, that was actually the name that's put there. Uh, in Hebrew, it would have been Zechariah. We know him as Zechariah. It was actually a really, really common name in those days. But I don't want you to have the familiarity of his name distract you from the coincidence that's not so coincidental, actually, that the first words that God sends to his people in four centuries are received by a man. Do you know what Zechariah's name means? God remembers. Psalm 121 verse 8 has this to say about this concept of waiting and that the Lord is faithful. Psalm 121.8. i got to get back to Psalm 119 because it's forever long. The Lord keeps watch over you as you come and go, both now and forevermore. God remembers. Guys, while it seemed that God had forgotten his people, the significance of Zechariah's place in the Christmas and the salvation story is to call back to another moment in Israel's history when they suffered for 400 years. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Like, wait a minute, 400 years that God was silent, that they felt like God wasn't with them? 400 years previously they had spent in oppression and mistreatment in Egypt. And the message then was the message renewed in the experience and the actions of Zechariah that God remembers his people. I just want to stop for a moment because you're like, that's great. I mean, good for old Zechariah. I mean, he's having a rough time here. He and Elizabeth both, they don't have a kid and they just feel like they've been forgotten. No, God remembers his people in all times and in all places. Wherever you are and whatever you're experiencing in your life, God remembers you. That is the amazing thing about God, that he could work on a, on a cosmic level, but he could at the same time work on a very personal level 
as well. He knows you. He knows what you're dealing with. He remembers his people. What they had experienced in being rescued from Egypt all those years prior was now being upped. God was upping the ante here. God wasn't just going to save them from a people, but he was going to save them from their sins. Guys, God never, ever forgets, but it is in his remembering that he acts. And remarkably, he is about to act in this moment, not just, like I said, on a national and cosmic level, but on a very compassionate and personal level, on Zechariah and Elizabeth's behalf. You see, guys, their their brokenness was a shared brokenness with the world around them. With all of Israel, Zechariah and Elizabeth are broken. But it's a very private and it's a very personal brokenness that these two are experiencing as well in their personal struggle of infertility. And indignity in any age, but especially in a culture where the ability to have children was seen as a direct sign of God's blessing. And so you can imagine as Zechariah and Elizabeth float around all the years of their life, and they're, they're past the age of 60 at this point, most people say, is that you can just hear the whispers, can't you? Like, what, what's wrong with them? Like, what did they do to make God so mad? What sin did they commit that God will not bless them with a child? And I don't want you to miss the irony in Zechariah being struck mute in a day and age when God had been silent for 400 years. It's almost as if God is saying, this is the last bit of silence before my voice will shout out. It will break through in a very big way and it will never go quiet again. And perhaps for some of you, you sit here this morning in this room, you're watching online and you're thinking and you're feeling like, hey, I'm in, I feel like I'm in the same boat. I feel like that all I ever hear in life is silence. Nothingness. When all you want is some good news or a favorable answer or a miracle, it seems that all that comes back in your life is your own echo your own thought, your own pain, your own brokenness. And this is where a story like Zechariah and Elizabeth becomes so important to the truth of Christmas because it's an even greater truth of God's sovereignty. The same God who has been rescuing and redeeming and remembering people in Egypt and at the cross is the very same God who wants to remember and rescue and redeem not just Zechariah and Elizabeth, but you. Let's talk a little bit about Elizabeth. Her name in Hebrew is actually the name Elisheva, which means his oath or the God of the oath. My God is an oath or my God is faithful or if you like to really boil it down, my God keeps his promises. That's what her name means. And so when Elizabeth looked at Zechariah every single day of her life for over 60 years now, she is reminded constantly the Lord is watchful and that he will remember. And you put Mr. and Mrs. Zechariah's name together and listen to what it means. You tell me that God doesn't know what he's doing. God remembers his oath is what you get when you put these two names together. 
And as Zechariah saw Elizabeth, it was a constant reminder to him that no matter how bleak things seemed nationally or personally, God was going to be faithful. He would come through and deliver. Guys, isn't, isn't that just a beautiful thing? And like not only as reminders to us, but in the moment they were key reminders to Zechariah and to Elizabeth of the goodness of God. Guys, and e- e- even in our world when the cultural and the political and the societal environment seems increasingly dark, God is still at work. Because God is watchful and God is faithful. And I believe this, that in every single generation, God raises up servants and people to say this to the nation and to people around them everywhere. Guys, you are, you are tempted to believe that everything is going down the tubes, but God is watchful. God remembers. God is faithful. You see, here's the very interesting thing, and this is very unique about Luke. He has done something very special in the opening of his gospel here. His story is, of course, principally about Jesus. We get that. We know that. But the name Jesus, interestingly enough, doesn't occur for the first 30 verses. And Jesus himself is not born until we get well into the story of Luke. You see, I believe that Luke knows that we'll need to prepare our minds and our hearts for the story of Jesus coming to this earth. And so he begins with the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, a very devout couple going about their everyday, ordinary lives. Guys, just like Joseph last week, who's living in Nazareth, these people are living in the hill country of Judea, and they're not expecting any of this. They were were simply just devout, faithful people going about their regular business. They were, it says here in Scripture, they were righteous in God's sight. They were observant Jews. They were keeping the law as a sign of grateful devotion to God. But here's the thing that I notice. I think we are so tempted to think this. Like, is there anybody in here that, like, you just think, like, my life is just boring. I think that a lot about my life. I'm like, it just, my life just seems super, just like, there's a, there's a rhythm to it. There's a pace to it. And you just wake up every day and you're like, I, I kind of know what's going to come today. But do you also realize that it's in the regular rhythms that create the fertile ground for extraordinary activity? Don't ever kid yourself in thinking my life is just boring. It will never amount to something. Oh, I guarantee you, God is doing something in those rhythms, in that faithfulness, in that uprightness. N.T. Wright says that God regularly works through ordinary people doing what they normally do, who with a mixture of half faith, which Zechariah does here, and devotion are holding themselves ready for whatever God has in mind. But the question I have as I look at this, and we, you would probably look at this too, and you're like, how in the world? I understand this. I understand the story and where it goes. It's pretty simple and straightforward. But how in the world can Zechariah and Elizabeth believe any of this? I mean, Elizabeth is, is barren. They're both, the King James Version says, they're both not just old, it says they are well stricken in years. I love that translation. My translation of it is they are wrinkly as a prune at this point in their life. And then, in God's divine timing and his goodness, here comes John. 
whose birth and the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth are meant to recall similar stories in the Old Testament of barrenness and infertility, followed by the birth of a special child. Guys, Luke is doing this as a sign that God has renewed his work among his people. His plan is once again being taken up in a very direct and active way. Guys, Zechariah would have known all the stories of God giving children to women who had long been barren. Isaac, Jacob, Esau, Samuel, Samson. Those are some pretty heavy hitters, right? They all came from women who were told, you'll never have a baby. And despite knowing these stories, Zechariah still can't quite believe Gabriel. And he asked for a sign, which I would say at that point, wisher, beware if you want a sign. He gets a sign, doesn't he? Nine months no talking. And given the way that people interact with him throughout the story, as you continue reading the story through Luke chapter 1, many people believe that not only was Zechariah, he couldn't speak, but he also was stricken deaf. He couldn't hear. In just one moment for nine months, you've, you've lost two great ways to communicate with people. Guys, there is a There's a lot of quiet time in those nine months for Zechariah to ponder the promises of God. But isn't that what all of us need so often in our lives? To just shut up. To just watch God do his work, to do his thing. Guys, the the Lord is constantly working and he's constantly moving. And I think that many times we run the risk of missing what God's doing because we don't stop and we don't listen and we don't pay attention. Guys, we need to draw near to God, and we need to listen to him. Now, this next part that I'm going to say may be very difficult for a lot of us to hear. But I think it's the truth that all of us really, really need to hear, and it highlights God's graciousness and his activity in Scripture. Is that I really believe, and I, don't, I, I just read this so often, we just talked about all of those Old Testament people, that God works the best in places of barrenness. God works best in the middle of a mess, is the way that I would say it. Guys, do you you understand in so many parts of Scripture, God's word happens in the wilderness, in the desert, or barrenness. And for us in our life, desert situations seem like a complete waste of time. God, why do you have me going through this? But it's often where God is doing his most powerful work in our lives where we are most vulnerable, where we are most raw, where we are most exposed, is where God is able to do his best work. This is a story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. It's a story of God's people. But isn't it also so many of our stories? Every single one of you in here are not impervious. You're not invincible to the fact that you have experienced, you are experiencing, or you will experience some sort of a wilderness moment in your life, a barren moment in your life. Where you just look at God and you say, what are you doing here? What are you doing? Guys, I wonder, what, is, what is your story? What is your cloud? What is the thing that has been hanging over life, your life that causes you grief and shame or the like? And I think that every one of us in here can in some small way sympathize with Elizabeth in her plight of childlessness. Some of us can even empathize with Elizabeth and her childlessness, but every one of us knows the pain of longing and disappointment and wilderness that is caught up in God's timing and plan. 
And here's what I want you to hear and I want you to know, and I will say this as many times as I possibly can in my life. God never, ever in Scripture or anywhere else guarantees that life will come without pain and disappointment. If you're thinking that to yourself, you are sadly, sadly, and sorely mistaken. God never guarantees that. The central issue in life is how we're going to handle the disappointments in life. Are we going to be bitter about it? Or are we going to be blessed and be a blessing with it? And, and I, I really I believe this in life, guys, that sometimes when we feel like we've come up against a roadblock, it's not a dead end. It's just a fresh turn in the road. Where are you going to go now? God, what are you going to do now? Where are you going to go with this? And what had been a long-term void in this couple's life was a part of God's bigger picture that even in the midst of darkness and disappointment, God is in the business of turning dead ends into changes in direction and a new way. Guys, the, the Christmas story is unquestionably and it's squarely and it's definitively about Jesus. But as is so often and true in each of our lives, our stories are told in large part by the people who come before us. The story of Zechariah and the story of Elizabeth and their son John is such a case. Which, by the way, I didn't tell you. I told you what Zechariah means and I told you what Elizabeth means, but do you know what little John's name means? The Lord is gracious. When you put this dear, sweet family together and bring all their names together, here is the message that it speaks. The Lord remembers his promise to be gracious. And guys, even though the Christmas story is all about Jesus, it is only told rightly and fully as we recognize and we appreciate the contribution of this wonderful family to the Christmas story. But as was the case last week with Joseph, it's not what we see in Joseph or Zechariah or Elizabeth or any biblical person for that matter, but it's how they see Jesus through them. As the narratives of Israel and every single life story from Abraham all the way to Malachi right on down to us who have been adopted into the family of God, we are only ever small dramas in the grand story of Jesus. In the same way, Zechariah and Elizabeth's life along with their child John is indicative of what all of us should see as our number one priority in life. All I am ever supposed to do on this earth is just point people to Jesus. I read earlier from the book of Isaiah and I stopped for a reason and I want to continue that on. Darkness, 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 darkness and more darkness at the end of chapter 8. Then we come into the famous chapter 9 and it says, nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Guys, a light has shone. Not will, it has shone. 
His name is Jesus. And guys, no matter what the world looks like today and how dark things may seem, I know this one thing which has been highlighted in the story of this faithful couple today and the miraculous birth of little John that paves the way to the true light but could be just as true about your life or your life or your life or mine. Guys, when you, when you plug Jesus into the darkness, there's only one thing that happens. The light goes on like that. This is a really weird way. I'm going to admit this right now to end this sermon, but I, find myself, I found myself this last week uh, watching Frozen um, because I have a four-year-old princess at home that wants to watch it all the time in every other Disney movie. So I'm well-versed in my Disney. And I had never really caught this before, and I understand that the context of the song in Frozen is about a wildly different thing, but I started listening to the lyrics, and I'm like, you know what? Like, this is really a great connect with what I'm talking about this week. And some of you will be like, dude, I don't see this, but that's fine. There's a song in the movie, and if, Brent, I think you have, like, the lovely little picture. You remember this moment in the movie Frozen? Brenna, next slide. Moving along. Floating lights, and they're in the boat towards the end of the movie, and they sing this song called I See the Light. Sorry, Tangled. I, I apologize. See, I watch so many of these Disney movies that they get all tangled in my mind. It is Tangled. You are correct. Sorry. I knew I was going to do that. I was like, frozen, frozen, frozen. I said, no, no, it's Tangled, and I did it anyways. Entangled. And here, listen to the lyrics. I want you to hear this. All those days watching from the windows. The wilderness, the barrenness, all those years outside looking in, all that time never even knowing just how blind I've been. Then there's another section in the song, all those days chasing down a daydream, a miracle, all those years living in a blur, all that time never truly seeing things the way they were. And then it goes on. Now I'm here blinking in the starlight. Now I'm here, suddenly I see. Standing here, it's all so clear. I'm where I meant to be. And then I was like reading this, and I'm thinking like, this is a really sappy song between a guy and a girl. And at last I see the light, it's like the fog has lifted. And at last I see the light, it's like the sky is new. It's warm and real and bright, and the world has somehow shifted. All at once, everything looks different. And then I was going to stop there, but I was like, you know what? I'm going to read this last line. Now that I see you. I thought, like, okay, we understand. Like I said, it's about a guy and a girl that found each other after all these years. But I just read those lyrics. I'm like, isn't that so much the story? of our life before we come to Jesus. We just walk around in a fog in this world. We hope for something. A miracle will just pop up. It'll show up in our lives. And then everything will be different. But it doesn't. We just stay in the fog because we're not looking for the right thing. We're not looking for the right person. And I love that last part of it. And now I see this is my hope that as you read the Christmas story, as you read about people like Joseph and people like Zechariah and, and Elizabeth, you see them pointing directly to one person and one person only, 
Jesus. And in the midst of all the hopelessness that pervades us in our world and all of the moments where we just well up with tears inside of us, we can look past all of that and we see in this world the one person that we really need to see, Jesus Christ. And guys, I'm not promising, I never, ever promise, I never want to give this impression that if you just do that and you take two of these and you go home and everything will be all better. It won't. Things will not get better in this world. But as we talked about a couple weeks ago, in the world to come, as heaven comes down and it meets earth, that will be the moment that we will see God for, for who he is face to face. But now we have Jesus, and through his spirit, we have the ability to, if you will, see him for all he is. And I pray that you continue to do that in the days and the weeks that lead up to Christmas and beyond, that you would see Jesus for who he really is. That he has led us out of wilderness and barrenness and hopelessness in our lives, and he has led us to something much better than that. Hope in the life to come. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, I ask this morning that, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one in the room, but I can't possibly believe that I am, who just feels sometimes that they just want to take a big, gigantic sigh. And the feeling that surely things have to get better, but they don't seem like they get better. They seem like they only get worse. But Lord, I just pray that we would all hold on to the truth that hope is not coming, but that hope has come. And that, Jesus, you are coming again. And that as we experience so many moments of brokenness and loss in, in this world and in our lives, Lord, we would hold on to the truth that you are good, and that you are faithful, that you remember your promises, and that you will never leave us. We thank you for people and thank you for a couple like Zechariah and Elizabeth and John who paves the way to remind us in the simplest of ways in the most ordinary of lives, Lord, you are gracious to fulfill your promise because you remember us. We thank you for that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.